Good morning, everyone. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here before you this morning. Uh, the text for our message is from, again, from this account of the feeding of the 5,000 from Matthew chapter 14, starting in the 13th verse. Please turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 863. Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 13. And while you're turning there, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things. As Elder Squalrek just read from the other three Gospels, we see that this miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ is reported in all four of the Gospels. And that is actually a rather rare thing that we see among the Gospels. So that tells us already that there must be something truly remarkable about this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So let's hear then the account before us this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, verses 13 through 21. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. When Jesus heard it, that is, heard of the death of John the Baptist, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude And he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke, that is broke the bread and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Let us pray together. O Eternal One, blessed Lord God, Almighty God and Heavenly Father, As we hear your holy word, we think how unworthy we are to receive it. And yet, O Lord, we know that it's your will and your pleasure to give it to us. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you may enliven it in our minds, in our hearts. We pray that you would press down your holy word into our hearts. We pray, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. 
For we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, friends, what do the miracles of Jesus mean to you? Of course, to the men, women, and children Jesus touched, it meant everything. He gave, us, he gave sight to a man who was born blind. He restored the body of one who was lame. He made another whole from his leprosy. And he healed a woman who suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 long years. And of course, there are many others that we could speak of. But Jesus' ministry extended beyond merely caring for the body, but he also cared for the soul. Jesus benefited all those whom he encountered. They were radically changed. For the rest of their lives, they would remember what Jesus had done for them. And we should remember that these were real people, people like you and me. Are you able to imagine what it must have been like and put yourselves into their shoes? We share with them the experience of the ups and downs of everyday life. We share with them our common humanity. So we should not forget the impact that Jesus had on these people, and we should thank and praise the Lord for it. So when we read from the Bible, we're not reading about made-up characters from a fable or for some modern novel. Yet sometimes, doesn't it seem like we approach the scripture as if we were reading pages from Hans Christian Andersen instead of from the Christian Bible? What do I mean by that? I mean that sometimes it seems like we become so familiar with the stories about Jesus' miraculous works that we minimize the strength and impact of them. Have you, have I, become overly familiar with Christ's miraculous works? Oh yes, I know about Jesus. I've heard about him since I was a kid. He turned water into wine at a wedding. He walked on the water. You know, Jesus was like that. He was known for those things. And so we turn what is miraculous and extraordinary into something that's common and ordinary. It reminds me of that old expression, familiarity breeds contempt. So as we turn to our passage this morning, perhaps we are confronted with the realization that we don't really know what the purpose was behind this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, it was to feed all those hungry men, women, and children who were gathered there that day. But it was also a way in which Jesus could demonstrate his power. As with all of Christ's miracles, this miraculous multiplying of the fish and the loaves of bread was intended to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. 
He was the Messiah who was prophesied to come. And he's the Savior of the world. And that purpose still has meaning for us today. That purpose has meaning for you and for me. And so through the lenses of Christ's miracles, we can see Jesus for who he is. And when we do see him, we find ourselves drawn to him. And once we are drawn to him, a little desire is kindled in us. I want to find out more about Jesus. How can I meet with him? And then that desire for Christ grows until we become much like those people that we read of in this passage who ran around the shoreline of the bay just to see Jesus, just to be with him. It reminds me of that text from the Song of Solomon and the voice of the bride to the beloved, her beloved. We read, draw me, we will run after thee. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why Jesus told his disciples, as we read in verse 16, that there is no need to send the people away. Indeed, I want us to consider that as the first point or heading of our message this morning. And the words that I would like to use to organize our reflections comes from this 16th verse, they do not need to go away. When the disciples told Jesus that it was late, it was already past the hour, and he should send away the multitudes so that they could go into the villages and buy food for themselves, that's when Jesus said, they do not need to go away. Jesus knew what he was about to do and miraculously feeding all of these people. But he also cared for their souls. As we said, the two go together. As the Geneva Bible's martial notes comment at this place, Christ leaves them not destitute of bodily nourishment who seek food for the soul. So as we think about why the Lord Jesus said they do not need to go away, let us examine three possible reasons. First, as we said, it was because they looked for him in a remote place, they found him, and he received them. Secondly, it's because he was moved with compassion for them, and he taught and healed them. And then thirdly, and most naturally, because he was about to feed them. And so, before we come to our first reason, I need, I feel compelled to explain some of the immediate context of our passage. And so, we'll begin with a question. How did it come about that such a large number of people gathered around Jesus? Mark, although he's the sh- his gospel's the shortest, may actually offer us more detail here. The 12 disciples had just returned after being sent out by the Lord on this missionary journey, we may call it. And so the Lord wanted them to rest. We read in the sixth chapter of Mark, 
Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught, speaking about their missionary trip. And he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Imagine that. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Now, in the original language in the Greek, the word here, deserted, sometimes it's translated as desert, may also be rendered as solitary, lonely, desolate, or uninhabited. John tells us in his parallel account that the annual feast of the Passover was at hand. So this miracle probably took place in the springtime when the land was typically refreshed with rain. So when we hear the word deserted or desert, we must not picture in our minds the sandy dunes of a dry desert or some kind of howling wilderness. Indeed, John tells us, quote, now there was much grass in that place. And Mark adds this detail that the grass was green. In his commentary at this place, J. Alexander writes about this grassy field and says, it is a circumstance which not only adds to the beauty of the picture and betrays a vivid recollection of the scene described, but it also explains this word deserted as denoting not a barren waste, but most probably an untilled pasture ground. So that's the picture that we have here, this place that where the feeding took place, this miracle. So why did Jesus decide to go to this solitary place? In addition to the rest that he and his disciples needed, we read in our passage in uh, Matthew that when Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist, he decided to depart in a boat. After the beheading of John, a sense of danger may have lingered in the air. As the Dutch annotations put it, going to a desolate place may be a way to avoid danger, seeing that the Lord's hour had not yet come. Perhaps Jesus recognized in John's death a turning point in his earthly life and ministry. The beheading of John signaled the approach of his own sacrifice on the cross. Next, we read in Mark's account, but the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. Now, perhaps you're asking yourself, how could the people follow on foot if Jesus and the disciples went to the other side in a boat? Well, again, as the Dutch annotations inform us, it's very helpful here, we read that for Christ was not passed onto the other side of the sea, but over a bay, abiding on the same side where they could follow him on foot. Now, I hope I have not been too tedious, but I wanted you to understand what's going on at this point in the narrative. 
And so we come to our first consideration as to why the Lord told the disciples they do not need to go away. It is because they looked for him in a remote place, they found him, and he received them. Having found Christ, why would he send them away? Why would Christ send away all these people when they were so eager to find him? My friends, this is, ought to be an example to us. Are you as eager as these people were to seek out Jesus and to be with him? I want you to listen again from the scripture what these people did. We read in Mark that they arrived before them, that is Jesus and the disciples, and came together to him. Did you catch that from Mark? He's saying that this crowd of people got to the other side of the bay before Jesus and his disciples did in the boat. Though the boat was a quicker way to reach the spot, These people must have rushed on foot, perhaps running most of the way, for they beat the boat to the other shore. Imagine how the news about Jesus spread by word of mouth, and what an excitement there must have been. So much commotion going on. What do you think it would have been like for you to have gone out with them? rushing along with a crowd of people away from their homes, away from the cities, just to find Jesus, just to be with him. Those who hunger for Christ are willing to go out, to be inconvenienced, to look for him, to find him, even in a remote place, a hard-to-find place, so to speak, that Jesus indeed may receive them and feed them. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, writes, It was no small manifestation of piety that they left their own homes and flocked in crowds to the prophet of God, though he purposely concealed himself from them. And in a similar way, we read in the Westminster Annotations, Note their zeal. They go as soon as they hear he was gone. They go a great way about on foot, leaving businesses, families, and cities of good accommodation, all their conveniences, in order to follow Christ in desert places. As we read in the Gospel of John, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And as David Dixon writes in his commentary, Christ is compassionate towards such as seek him. And of such as seek him, he will put none away. Do you remember what else we read from Mark? We read that many knew him, many knew Jesus. That is, they recognized Jesus and they knew about his miracles especially the healings. And so some brought with them those who were sick. As we read in the parallel account in John, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. 
the multitudes heard and followed Jesus because they wanted to be with him. Do you want to be with Jesus? My brothers and sisters, do you have that same kind of desire to commune with Christ? Or has your Christian faith just become a matter of routine in your life? Where is your heart this morning? Have you or I forgotten our first love? As the Lord wrote to the church of Ephesus, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So after the people looked for Jesus so eagerly in a remote place and found him and then were received by him, why would Jesus send them away? They don't need to leave him. And so we come to our second reason. It was because the reason that Jesus said they don't need to leave, it was because that he was moved, the Lord Jesus was moved with compassion for them and he taught them and healed them. We read in our own passage in Matthew in verse 14, and when Jesus went out, that is when he came out of the boat, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them. Mark adds there that he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. The phrase in verse 14 where we read that Jesus was moved with compassion actually comes from a single Greek word, a plonchnizomai. His compassion, the Lord's compassion, was not some sentimental, superficial feeling. According to Bollinger, in the Greek, the term means to feel the bowels yearn, to have compassion, to pity. And as Thayer states, in that day, the bowels were thought to be the seed of love and pity. And although we also, well, we typically use heart instead of bowels as the seed of our feelings, we still recognize the experience with expressions like a gut feeling. And this is not the only place in the scripture where this word is used. And I'll just give you uh, one or two examples Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. It's that same Greek word there. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherds. So it's also a repetition of this theme that the Lord Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. My friends, this deep-seated compassion is characteristic of the Lord in his manner, in his motivation, as he accomplishes our redemption. Returning to the parallel count in Mark, immediately after we read that Jesus was moved with compassion and that he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd, we read that he began to teach many things. So he began to teach them many things. 
Now, we may not think of teaching as the first way to express compassion, but that's exactly what Jesus did. And we also read from a parallel account in Luke that Jesus received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, although Jesus had compassion on them all, we must not assume that they were all of the elect. In fact, in these passages, we read of something of a mixed response to Jesus. In the parallel account of John, we read that some did indeed believe and they testified, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, this is a reference to a prophecy of Moses, which was very well known by the Jews and typically understood as a foretelling of the Messiah. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, in other words, like Moses, from among their brothers, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So that is the testimony of some who were there. They identified Jesus as this prophet, the Messiah, who was to come. But then there were those who did not understand the Lord's first coming, as we read in John, or as we did read. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. We are also told from our account in Matthew that as a result of Christ's compassion, he healed the sick. Imagine how their healing must have given them a feeling of renewal. No aches, no pains. You might even say that they were given a foretaste of what it may feel like for many of them in their future resurrected bodies. How this healing must have completed their experience on that day, that feeling of bodily wholeness, while at the same time being fed by Christ both physically and spiritually. So as Jesus was moved with compassion and taught and healed them, why would he send them away? They do not need to go away. And so we come to our third heading, or the third reason for Jesus' words here, They do not need to go away. And this is the most obvious reason. It was late, and the disciples were tired and perhaps a bit anxious. So they came to Jesus with a pragmatic solution. Lord, send the multitudes away so they can return to the villages and buy food. There's no shop here to buy food in this remote place. The disciples didn't plan for something like this to occur. And though the people were hungry, how can they be asked to go away when their hearts have been warmed by Jesus? Then Jesus tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. This must have seemed like madness to the disciples. (laughs) What? All we have are five loaves of bread and two fish. This is absurd. There are some 5,000 men here, not counting the women and children. But their response 
will underscore the miracle which Jesus is about to perform. And yes, indeed, Jesus is challenging their faith. At another place, Christ admonishes them, If you have faith and do not doubt, and you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And remember, they had just returned from a missionary trip where we are told that they not only preached repentance, but they cast out many demons. And they healed, we're talking about the apostles here, the disciples, they healed many who were sick. So Jesus says, you give them something to eat. But alas, their faith was too weak. And at the same time, Jesus as the great shepherd is teaching his under-shepherds that they must learn to care for his sheep. And the Lord is teaching them also that without him, there can be no ministry for the people. And so Jesus says, bring them, that is the loaves and fish, here to me. And then Jesus commands the people to sit down on the grass, presumably This was done so as to facilitate the distributing of the food. Next, Jesus looks up to heaven and prays and blesses the food. This is just as he taught his disciples how to pray, our Father who art in heaven or who dwells in heaven. Jesus then broke the bread and gave portions for the disciples to distribute to the people. So it is as if the disciples gave the people something to eat after all. But without Christ, they could do nothing. Friedemann Merkel, in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, gives us an interesting note on the way that Jesus served the bread. Merkel writes... that there is a Jewish custom of hospitality from the early rabbinic period where the head of the house took the loaf from the table in front of him and pronounced the blessing, blessed be the Lord our God, the king of the universe who has caused bread to spring out of the earth. The guest answered, amen. Then the host would give a piece of bread to each of the guests and then ate first himself. Jesus, who was firmly rooted in Jewish tradition, used this blessing as is suggested both in the accounts of the feeding of the five and the four thousand and also at the Lord's Supper. How pleasant it must have been. Think about this. After seeing Jesus healing many who were sick and hearing him teach, they laid down or reclined is how the Greek, uh, uh, the sense in the Greek, they reclined in the green grass. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, all shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Isn't that a beautiful image for us? And then as she relaxed, and I can imagine the children running around, you'd hear them 
play and laugh. Then you see the disciples serving everyone from baskets overflowing with fish and bread. Now, at this point, it may be helpful to make a distinction between two miraculous feedings. Uh, Sometimes the two are confused. In fact, some people even claim that they refer to the same feeding, the same event. But I think it's clear from the scripture that these are two separate events. Now, the way we know this are by observing some key details. For example, as we read in the feeding of the 5,000, they begin with five loaves of bread and two fish, and they ended with 12 baskets of food. But in the feeding of the 4,000, which first of all is a different number of people, they begin with the seven loaves of bread and with, it says, a few fishes. And also they ended with not 12, but seven baskets of food. Now, besides these things, which I think are compelling, in Matthew chapter 16, we read of Jesus speaking to his disciples in a boat, and he's actually referring to these as two separate events. And without giving the whole context there in the interest of time, he identifies one of the miraculous events by saying the five loaves of the 5,000, and then he refers to the other miraculous event as the seven loaves of the 4,000. If you want to look this up, it's in Matthew chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. Now, next in our account of this event in Matthew, we read that they all ate and were filled. J.G. Baldwin writes in the same dictionary of New Testament theology that we quoted from before, that the evangelists all, that means all four of the Gospels, the four evangelists, all laid stress on the fact that the crowds not only ate, but were satisfied. And Jesus promised the same even in his Beatitudes. When we feed on what Jesus offers, we will always be satisfied. Do you remember what took place at the wedding of Cana in Galilee? It's one of the Lord's first miracles, or maybe been his first one. He changes the water into wine. And the master not being aware, the master of the feast not being aware of what had taken place in the miracle, he brings the bridegroom over to him, and he tells him, you have kept the good wine until now. In other words, this is the wine that Jesus transformed from the water. That was in the judgment of this master of the feast at the wedding, and I'm sure he had some uh, experience that would qualify his expertise. He said, but you have kept the good wine until now at the end of the feast. The point I want to make here in connection with our passage is that even when Jesus performs a miracle, He doesn't just simply perform a miracle, so to speak, but he does everything unto excellence. When he turned the water to wine, it was the best wine. It's the best imaginable wine you could ever taste. And so I can well imagine that this fish and bread that the Lord Jesus multiplied was very delicious. Finally, we do read that the 12 
baskets full, that there was a remainder of 12 baskets full of fragments of food. So what do we understand by that? There's such an outpouring of the blessing from the Lord Jesus. He always gives, but he always gives in abundance, in a great abundance. But there is one thing here I feel I must warn you about in interpreting this number of baskets. And this is quite common, I'm afraid, even in our own church circles, to be understood this way. And that is that people often take this number 12, the 12 baskets that was left over of food, and they make some kind of symbolic meaning out of it. But one critical part or principle, let me say, in interpreting the Bible is that you have to understand the genre of literature that you're interpreting as a guide to how you interpret it. And the Gospels are full of just a simple, plain narrative of events, right? That's your experience. We read, you know, Jesus took the boat, he crossed the lake here, he crossed it again. His ministry was based in Capernaum. He seems to be always on the go. Um, He said this, he did this. It's just a simple, plain narrative. And I tell you, in terms of the genre of the literature, we should not then be looking for some kind of mystical or symbolic meaning in the number 12 in these baskets. In fact, I read in one commentary that the 12 baskets were, quote, likely symbolic that Jesus has come to give a full blessing upon Israel, presumably that it was a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. But I don't see any warrant for taking such a meaning from the text. You might then ask, what, what was the intent? This is another important principle for interpreting the scripture. What was the intent of the Holy Spirit in giving us that word? Why was that detail put in there about the 12 baskets? Well, don't you think it was to show, again, the great abundance of what the Lord gave the people? And if there is any connection between the number 12 and the 12 uh, apostles or disciples, it would only be because each one of them grabbed a basket and went around to collect the food, so there was 12 baskets at the end. Here's the, the real point. The point is, is that everyone ate. It wasn't just like some of the people ate. Everyone ate, we are told, in the scripture. And we're also told that everyone was filled, everyone was satisfied. And we're told that there was a great number of people, 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. You could easily double that number if you take into account the women and the children. And so what a remarkable miracle this was indeed. So why would Jesus send the people away when he was going to feed this great multitude and feed them to the point where they're full, they're stuffed, and they're satisfied. But for us, let's close with these questions as we reflect on this miracle. What does the feeding of the 5,000 mean to you and to me? This took place so long ago. This is what it, this is what it means for us today. It means that Jesus really is the Son of God. 
It means that Jesus is deeply moved, like from the bowels, so to speak, from a visceral region of his body. He's deeply moved with compassion for those who seek him. Even for sinners like you and me. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 means that if we know who Jesus is, we will run after him. If we know who Jesus is, we'll want to be with him just to hear him, to hear him teach to us from the holy word of God. If we know who Jesus is, we'll just want to be with him. We'll want to commune with him. That's what this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 teach us. Don't you want your soul to be fed by Christ? Let us pray.